It all started with that question. How can we increase the relationship of schools that are next to the mountains with the mountains? If you have a deep question to solve in, in whatever space you're living, ask the forest. How would the forest solve this? So if we want to live as nature, we need to start learning as nature because it's the only way we'll generate that dialogue to understand you know, the, the, the interactions and the capacities to come into right relation. Welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Luis Alberto Camargo. Luis was named the 2023 Richard Luther Prize recipient in recognition of his life's work, which has impacted over 130,000 children and youths across Colombia. Luis is the founder and executive director of OPEPA, the Organización para la Educación y Protección Ambiental, and the co-founder of The Weaving Lab, as well as a core member of the Regenerative Communities Network. He's also part of many different networks, including the director of Thunder Outdoors, a global change leader, the Young Global Leader, and an Ashoka Fellow. Prior, he held a number of roles, including advisor to the Vice Minister of Environment of Colombia, advisor to the Department of National Planning, researcher at Universidad de los Andes, and at WWF. In this conversation, Luis and I talk a lot about how we can reconnect as nature, not with nature, but as nature, how we use the environment around us, the landscape around us, to have experiences that allow us to fall in love with nature. Luis has a long experience of taking adults and children outside and to really see the effects that being outside and communing with nature has on the way we relate with ourselves and with others. This is a fascinating conversation full of ideas, of course, but also practical insight. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, it's Benjamin Freud, and the website is coconut-thinking.com. And I'll leave space for my conversation with Luis. Hi, Luis. It's really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, we've spoken quite a few times, I guess, over the last few years uh, in regards to education in nature, education as nature, learning as nature, some of the adventures that you take people on to get them to fall in love with nature, as well, of course, as uh, the Weaving Lab. And, and I'd love to touch on a lot of these topics and specifically what your approach is coming from, from your experience as, as the founder of Opipa, just learning a bit more about your story. So I'll open it up by just asking that. Who are you and what story do you want to tell? Nice, Benjamin, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast. It's great to be thinking as a coconut because I always think you know, the podcast invokes new ways of thinking from hard to soft to liquid and fluid. So I'm really glad to be here. And um, like you said, my name is Luis Camargo. I'm from Bogota, Colombia. Um, and I've spent the last 25 years mostly uh, working to reconnect people to nature in order to accelerate the transition towards sustainable and regenerative cultures. I founded a nonprofit organization called OPEPA, which is the Organization for Environmental Education and Protection. Um, and using that as an umbrella, I've been working in this area for, for this time. In terms of me, I'm definitely a family person. I have two daughters. My wife, been married for 16 years. Um, and family life has 
definitely reinforced the importance of being deeply rooted and connected to place and to nature um, and being able to to channel um, and learn not only let's say our kids but also ourselves continuously learn and learn with nature in the center so i feel nature has a huge role in in learning that we have maybe taken for granted or forgotten um, and in this process uh, i've discovered many things that have actually you know enhanced my work and enhanced my thinking and let's talk a little bit about this about learning what what does learning mean to you okay so when i think of education let's start with that concept which is a more traditional concept i think of education uh, in the sense of having someone teach someone else you know this traditional idea that we're empty vessels and empty vessels that need to be filled with information with knowledge whatever um and when i have you know discovered what i have discovered is that education is much more so i do like to speak of learning more than education and i think learning starts even when we're in the bellies of our mothers um, and learning if we look at development uh, theory you know learning starts the moment we start uh, building our nervous system and we start building connections within our body and our mind and our brain um, and it's all based on you know the context obviously there's genetics involved but a big part of it is, you know, the environments that we have access to and the experiences we have access to. So for me, those two things become really critical. How do we create environments and we generate life experiences since before we're born till we die um, that allow us to learn and to continuously learn? Um, so learning is precisely gathering all the information gathering the feelings gathering the what we sense uh, in all these experiences and making sense of them uh, creating significance to to ourselves to who we are to who we are in relation to others uh, both human and non-human and to who we are in relation to how we build community and we build the future so learning is actually a process that goes, you know, continuously in terms of gathering experiences uh, that can enhance uh, our ways of being. And you mentioned this idea of reconnect with nature, which entails that we lost those connections with nature. And we can talk about what happened perhaps during the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. But let's talk about what that might mean to reconnect with nature when you're based in Bogota when you're based in an urban setting. Now, you know, we're, we're in, in terms of Colombia, there's, there's, there's jungles, there's forests, there's mountains, there's, there's a lot of natural places there, but, but what are we looking at in terms of reconnecting with nature in an urban setting? Yeah, um, first of all, I do agree, you know, that this connection is uh, something we've created as humans in terms of our separation or perceived separation from the natural environment. Because ultimately, for thousands of years, we evolved deeply rooted and deeply connected. Um, maybe since the Industrial Revolution, like you said, we started creating all these machines and intermediate intermediators 
that ultimately separated us and philosophically, religiously, we started also creating all these arguments uh, to believe that we were or either superior or separate of nature. And I think uh, the first thing I, I need to say is that, you know, we really are not disconnected and have never been. It's just our perception and the, the way we've created, you know, our, our ways of thinking that actually separate us and create these, this sense of separation. So going to, to urban and my experience in Colombia, it's really interesting because, you know, I lived when I was a, a little kid uh, with a lot of access to rural areas. Um, and I think deeply my connection and my a lot of my memories are exploring and frolicking in, in, in nature. Um, and I think this was a big part of me when I was a little kid. Nonetheless, if we look at Latin America, Latin America is 80% urbanized, which is, you know, a huge number when you, as you say, invoke Latin America that's full of jungles and, and wilderness. But the truth is most people are living in, in urban uh, settings. Um, and there's another factor that really impacted my work initially, and it was not only that we're concentrating in urban cities, but Colombia was living, you know, in the in the 90s um, and sometimes now, really complex situations where, you know, going outside the cities was dangerous, was dangerous because of uh, insurgent movements that would kidnap people or uh, antipersonal mines. So both for people living in more rural and urban, you know, it was challenging and it was scary. So a lot of people actually concentrated even more. So I think Colombia had a double layer of separation, one which is conceptual and one which was a bit forced by the political situation of our country. Um, and this actually created a group of kids that I was so surprised uh, when reflecting on this that, you know, eight years old really didn't know where milk was coming from. And we're in a country where, you know, you can feel where milk comes from, or this is what I thought at least. So this separation and then the migration into the cities that generates uh, really unplanned development uh, and many times unplanned development really concentrates people in places where there's no green spaces, no parks, no access to, to really, you know, nature. Um, so I do think... Uh, the reality of a city, you know, 10 million people like Bogota is complex, but it's not unique. I think many places in the world have a reality like this. Um, and I think once we start becoming so urban, we start reinforcing the sense that we are not connected, that we are separate from nature because we don't walk on the ground or, or on the soil. We, we have very little contact, and every contact we have is um, filtered. So if it's going to rain, we have a way to hide from the rain. If it's sunny, we have a way to cower from the sun. If it's hot, we go in and cower from the heat. So there's always mediation that creates this sense, definitely, of separation. Um, and what we've found is that you know, every city does have a lot of nature, but we have lost the capacity to acknowledge nature within the city 
and around the city. And this is not only important for learning and education, this is fundamental in the move to understanding cities as vital components of sustainability and changing the ways we create livelihoods um, in our world. You know, understanding cities are as living cities and cities that include all the animals and all the birds and all the critters and the plants that actually can be part of our, our community, urban community. Um, so this really has brought me to think, you know, many ways of how we can not only bring nature into education, but also how can education or education meaning schools and formal education can start bringing learning out to nature within cities and start making, a, let's say, sense of how we can connect our lives, urban lives, to nature within cities in a, in a way that actually adds value and adds understanding to our relationships with ourselves, with others, and with nature. So what might that look like in terms of maybe some of the experiences and stories that you've created in bringing nature to people and bringing people to nature? And I don't necessarily mean that physically. I also mean that in terms of that emotional reconnection, that that clarity that we are nature. What are some of the experiences that, that you can tell us that you've had and created? Okay, one, I think one of the, the key experiences that we're working on, because we work both in education and nature-based education as a key anchor, but we've realized nature-based approaches and nature-based education helps us understand, let's say, our land from tourism or our ways of living in regenerative cultures. And even the way we, uh, let's say, face a lot of the critical issues we're facing today. Um, and in this process, what you know, a really great experience has been something we call the uh, nature-based education networks. So this is an, an initiative that actually began seven years ago collaboratively uh, in, in meetings when we were thinking, you know, Bogota is actually in a high altitude plateau. It's at 8,000 feet or, you know, 2,600 meters in altitude. Um, and we're surrounded by mountains. We're in the middle of the Andes of the Eastern Andes of Colombia. Um, and there's mountains all around the city. So when you think of Bogota and, and those that have had the chance, and even if you Google it, you will always see mountains. You know, this is an important part of our landscape. Um, and these mountains were always under pressure to being urbanized. So there was um, a really strong, let's say, resistance and, and discussion in terms of how could you protect the mountains and allow the urbanization to stay, let's say, in the valley, in, in, the, in, the, in the plateau? Um, and in this process, you know, there was some legislation that started blocking the access to the mountains. But at the same time, we were reflecting with other colleagues in, in, in another foundation and schools. You know, why is it that having these mountains next to the city and we don't, you know, it's not a place that's accessed to learn. We have very little relation, direct relationship with those mountains. So it, it all started with that question. How can we increase the relationship of schools that are next to the mountains with the mountains and allow mountains to become a subject 
in the conversation, a subject in the community. Um, so we thought part of what we could do is actually using, you know, and, and recognizing nature as a neutral space to meet, to dialogue, because this is another really important factor for us uh, within a country that has faced so much conflict. You know, there's a lot of polarities and a lot of differences that generate conflict. Um, and in my work, I've realized nature is definitely a canvas that allows us to see things in a different way. Nature is, doesn't judge. Nature, you know, doesn't have the biases we might have as individuals. So in trying to solve conflicts, many times we've gone to nature and really having different people with different views, looking at nature and realizing nature, you know, we are nature. Then when they look at each other, they realize they are, you know, individuals that can talk beyond their differences and where diversity ultimately is an enriching factor, not a factor of, of conflict. So we decided the mountains of Bogota would be a, a great scenario to start gathering uh, students and gathering the diversity in, in Bogota to learn, to learn together and to learn in different levels because nature allows us to you know, create spaces of silence or what I would call spaces of emergence in our, in our development, um, which really helps to uh, ponder on who we are and what we are on the, on our essence and to learn to sense, you know, our energies and, and the way we're being, we're holding ourselves in our community. So we're thinking, you know, nature as a space to look in, inside, to work in, in, in ourselves, but also a space to start building more community and community within diverse groups. And then a space that can allow us to really strengthen our relationship with the natural environment that's around us and recognize, you know, not only the mountains, but the mountains and all the nature that's around and inside Bogota as, you know, a really important part of our community. So this is how the initiative started. We started creating a small network of, of students and teachers and schools uh, that gathered around one of the schools that had access to the mountains. So we realized also that access was really important uh, and access in the sense that a lot of times urban schools and urban institutions do not have access to you know, wilderness areas or nature, but there are some that do. So in this case, we realized that the schools and the institutions that had the access by becoming part of a network that was, you know, uh, gathering uh, to enable learning in nature, you know, actually opened the doors for other schools to access those natural spaces. Um, and we started with, you know, 30 students, uh, you know, like 10 schools that were on the side of the mountains. And in that first meeting, we realized, you know, the mountains mean a lot more than just mountains. You know, in the mountains, water falls and slides down into the creeks, into the rivers, across the city, into the wetlands, to the river, to the Bogota River. So it was only logical that we had to expand and understand that nature was telling us you know, to embrace the whole city. So we opened the network to the whole city and started gathering 
and inviting schools. This is, like I say, um, a horizontal network. There's no hierarchies, no power. Voluntarily made, voluntarily um, lead led. Um, and, you know, very quickly, we had 110 schools from around the city gathering in different moments to learn using nature as the center. Um, and in this process, obviously, there is, let's say, opportunities started to emerge. Teachers wanted to learn more about nature-based education, about flow learning, about experiential learning in nature and how, you know, citizen science and how to use all these tools to bridge their students' learning. So we started creating opportunities to share these, this knowledge with, with teachers. And at the same time, moments where teachers and students can uh, meet and learn in a different way. And one thing that was really important in this process was, like I said, to really be intentional in connecting the inner, the community, and the nature relation. So it's all about learning to come into good relation and learning to, to foster relationships. So we started doing exercises that combined um, science and citizen science with deep introspection. One of those is one we call moving maps, which is, or emotional mapping, which had to do with, you know, overposing a learning about map in, in a technical sense. So we did uh, workshops on type, you know, typograph topographical maps. We did, you know, water maps. We did different types of maps, but at the same time we had students and teachers really walk one of the reserves next to the city. And, and as they did their map from a technical stance, they started sensing and feeling the spaces and trying to find their spaces of synchrony and resonance. And in that process, uh, starting to map the colors, the emotions, and everything that came out of those spaces. Um, and this was an individual, uh, let's say, activity that actually afterwards when we started sharing, it was incredible because it opened the door to share really deep, um, let's say feelings and, and, and thoughts between different communities based on their, you know, their, the way they lived and their conditions um, and really opened the door to, to community. Um, and at the same time, by having kids that are in the city that usually don't get space uh, and time of silence in nature. This really opened the door for them to start recognizing the value that nature brings to their lives. So it was really interesting. And this happened maybe two years ago, the first time we did it, two years uh, before COVID. Um, and it was one of our key tools during COVID because we shifted and created, you know, um, let's say, a methodology that used everything we learned in, in that exercise to help kids that were in COVID uh, contained in their apartment to start relating with all nature that was within their direct environment, out their windows, in their neighborhoods, and started mapping collectively spaces where people were disconnected, but realizing they were truly connected by everything that was outside by the birds they were seeing, they were, you know, sharing some of those experiences that nature was bringing. So 
you know, this this is part of um, creating networks and creating um, communities and learning communities that starts by experiencing the world in a different way and recognizing both nature as a really important actor and a subject that can teach us an environment that can uh, inspire us and the amount of knowledge that nature has after you know 3.8 billion years of evolution uh, it has to be a resource to be able to rethink the way we live the world and and we always ask these questions in such a way that students go back to nature and ask nature um, and uh, I find myself uh, telling both teachers principals and students uh, and even businessmen a lot of times is why don't you ask the forest? You know, if you have a deep question to solve in in whatever space you're living, ask the forest. How would the forest solve this? And I think that is a great, you know, segue or or door to really exploring our relationship, but also knowledge that is embedded in in nature. And this opens up a fantastically interesting question about learning as nature not learning from nature but learning as nature what would the forest do how would the forest respond to some of these situations that we might find ourselves in how how does the business community that you talk to find themselves in terms of their ability to learn as nature to understand the functions of nature and bring that back into their own businesses or or communities I think both the educational and the business community have difficulties sometimes because we've been so habituated to think mechanistically and and in you know in silos and you know we're we're thinking in a different way. But especially the conversation that has been most beneficial is when we talk of governance, you know, and and communities and organizations definitely you know, ask a lot about governance. How can we move to a better way of governance that is more just, that is, you know, better? And and that's where I find myself really asking the forest because if you look at the forest, it's definitely an example that will guide us in our leadership and in our ways of relating. Um, you know, moving from highly competitive to highly collaborative spaces and understanding that diversity is really not a threat, is really not the cause for conflict, uh, which is something that is, is one of my pet peeves, is seeing how in a world or in, in a country like Colombia that is so diverse in cultures, in, in ecosystems, you know, we're so much in conflict. Uh, but if you look at the forest and do this question, and let's say to a forest in, in the Pacific coast or the Amazon in Colombia, we realize they're the most diverse forest in the world and they're thriving. And they're thriving because diversity is their way of creating potentials, of, of creating potential of creativity, of innovation, of evolution. So how can we bring that into our human space? And I always ask them because... I think we, since the Industrial Revolution, maybe, you know, since science started shifting, we have appropriated the discourses that serve us, not the serve life. Um, and one of them is, you know, we need to compete to survive because that's what nature does. But the reality is that if you look even at Darwin's research, he said the contrary. 
He said competition embedded in a highly collaborative uh, environment has a really important functions because it serves to, you know, to grow uh, in spurts, let's say, to make really quick uh, steps in evolution or in learning. But collaboration, it's what holds the space and allows for true change and thriving in a system. Um, so these type of, let's say, nature-based uh, inspirations definitely need to inform what I would say, nature-based education, nature-based leadership or regenerative leadership, you know, it, it has to be informed by nature. And I think if we look at the way we're living the world, the way we're learning and the way we're, you know, facing all these huge planetary challenges, it is directly related to that. You know, we've lost our capacity of living as nature. So if we want to live as nature, we need to start learning as nature because it's the only way we'll generate the dialogue to understand, you know, the, the, the interactions and the capacities to come into right relation. And I think, you know, there is a lot of learning from past and ancestral communities. There's a lot of learning from what we've done, good and bad, in, in the modern world. And there's a lot of reflection of how we want to start living our present and our future. But we need to use our intelligence. And I think this might be the characteristic that puts us in, in a different place. We can actually be conscious and cog have cognition of our own cognition. And this is quite particular. But we also need to put our volition and our intention and our capacity to act in incoherence. So incoherence to what? To, you know, what creates uh, the conditions for life to thrive. And I think, you know, when, when I think of biomimicry and Janine Benyus, you know, I think this is the phrase that guides and should guide learning and should guide a lot of what we do um, and, and always be thinking is what our, you know, our approach to learning, our approach to the questions we're asking, inviting to create conditions for life to thrive or not. Um, and if we start answering yes and acting in that line, I'm sure a lot of the issues we're facing today will shift because we will find other ways of, of being that are in synchrony with the living world and in synchrony with community and ultimately in synchrony with ourselves because we are nature. And you brought up a couple of times this idea of regenerative leadership. Regeneration being a word that's been increasingly popular over the last six months, maybe already starting to be co-opted. Maybe we might you know, talk about things like teal washing. Uh, leadership is clearly something that uh, um, people are connecting with regenerative leadership. And, and uh, without getting lost in this, in this minefield of, of what words mean, what, are, what is some of the sense that regenerative leadership might be? What are some of the aspects that it might look like, uh, understanding that it's it's contextual, as well as uh, guided by by certain principles? Yeah, I think uh, I have two thoughts. One, regenerative leadership as, as a function of leadership based by principles, by living system principles. So I think this is the key anchor uh, that might allow us to lessen the capacity to co-opt the, the thinking. You know, if we always go back to living systems principles, we will, you know, stay at least in the line where it's meant to be. 
but also maybe framing it in a different way. If we talk about nature-based leadership, it's also, you know, they're both very similar in many ways, but it's it's associated to understanding the key concepts that allow systems to thrive, especially living systems. You know, we have a planet that have that has learned and evolved to thrive. We have ecosystems that have, you know, been prosperous for many years. And every time something happens that disturbs and impedes that system to be prosperous, the system adapts and moves in such a way that it creates, you know, a new state of, let's say, of um, homeostasis, of, of, of stability, you know, and stability so it can keep on thriving. And this is one of the key principles in, in, in all this. So when we talk about nature-based leadership or regenerative leadership, you know, I really think it's leadership inspired by living system principles. So how can we start acting more like we are nature, because we are nature, like I said, but we should start bringing our, you know, coherence, our intentions, our, our volition, and our actions, and the way of thinking. How can we restructure our mental models? Because ultimately, I think we've created a trap for ourselves. So if we look at the way, you know, cultures happen, cultures create scaffolding or start building, you know, an idea of what it means to be something, uh, you know, what it needed to, to thrive or, or to be successful, or, you know, we create all these definitions that start molding the way we think. But we forget that those definitions were created by us. You know, those are not absolute definitions. So when we talk about regenerative uh, leadership, it's also about uh, allowing ourselves to question the structures that we have created, especially when we see those structures are not in synchrony or in harmony with creating thriving systems where life can really express itself. Um, and if we look at a planet that, you know, looking at planetary boundaries model, for example, you know, it's the vital science of the earth. Um, and we looked at from nine vital signs, six, we're totally out of range in terms of creating a livable space for not only humans, but for many of the species uh, that live in our planet. We need to wake up that, you know, definitely the model we've created and we think is absolute is not working. Um, so I think regenerative leadership is all about doing that first question is what is it that we're doing? Uh, and let's identify all those things that are really not in synchrony with generating thriving systems and with sustaining life. And thinking from there back into how we lead our lives, how we lead our relations, and how we lead our communities, our endeavors, um, and how we can shift that. And I'm still struck by this idea of life thriving. And I'm still thinking about uh, this idea of connection because so often when we think about sustainability, we think about these green solutions. We think about uh, solar panels, we think about recycling, we think about composts. And really they're just ways of shifting our current way of life. So green growth being, okay, we're still gonna grow, but it's gonna be green and it's gonna be less harmful. 
The key here with the regeneration piece and thriving is that it's all life. It's not just my life that has to thrive with my comfort on my couch, eating my whatever, but it's all life. And, and that forces us, to, forces us to see the connections between us and other humans and other than humans and the more than humans. And that's the fundamental shift, that connection, that interrelation. When we say living systems, those living systems are nested within one another. So there is no separation. That's a fundamental civilizational shift of how we understand ourselves. Um, certainly, it's been exacerbated by the scientific revolution. Nevertheless, this, this idea of individuality has to shift to, to think about ways that we are nature and are the same and connected to, to every living thing. Totally. Um, and individuality as a way of thinking, you know, in... in in relation to, because individuality doesn't really exist if everything else doesn't exist. Um, so it's also part of the, the trick. So in, in thinking all this, I, I believe there's two ways of approaching uh, regeneration, let's say, and, and this really pertains to learning also and to education. And, you know, it's thinking on shifting models. It's hard, you know, it's scary. Um, Sometimes we don't know what will emerge, but we need to allow the space of emergence. And in this process, you know, we can think of, you know, shallow shifts and deep shifts uh, and very much in line with, you know, Aldo Leopold's idea of deep ecology and shallow ecology. You know, I've been thinking that regeneration is not very different from that. So we have shallow regeneration or regenerative practices. It's practices and processes. So what you say, we start talking about how do we shift agriculture into agroecological systems that are more regenerative? It's initially a shallow practice because we can do it without shifting fully our mental models. You know, it's something we do. We change our habit, we change the structure. And that is great. And it's going to be transitional. It's important and it's urgent. It's what we can do right now. Nonetheless, that will not shift our general culture. It, it will not help us evolve because if we keep on working on this, uh, under the same scaffold, under the same mind frame, you know, it doesn't matter how we change practices. You know, the result will always be aligned to results that are not in synchrony with life. Um, so this is why deep regenerate, regenerative practices come in. And it has to do a lot with you know, really working in our relationship to ourself, allowing ourselves the space of silence and the, the capacity to open connections uh, to ourselves, to others, and to nature. It has to be these three levels simultaneously because we can be deeply rooted with nature, but if we're not connected to ourselves or, or to others, there's going to be an unbalance of relationships. And I think... Uh, in learning what what I really you know try to do and and let's say the nature-based education networks and the work I do with teachers and students it's always focused on how can we can how can we create learning experiences that foster you know processes to rethink our relationship with ourselves to start rethinking the way we relate to others and the way we relate to nature and as we synchronize those, we were able to activate our sense of interbeing, so our empathy, our love, 
uh, and our sense of understanding of, of life around us. Uh, we're also activating our capacity to understand community, a coll a collectivity, you know, capacity of collaborate and, and, and community health. And lastly, understanding how communities relate to each other. So human communities and let's say natural or wilderness, how do we relate? How are we in transactions that can foster regenerate, regenerative spaces or can foster destructive degenerative spaces? So this brings always to questions of being more aware of who we are uh, and how we are in relation to, and then learning how to sense, how to sense the impact of uh, the interactions in those relations. Because we should always have in our minds the idea that you know, our actions generate one of two results. It's actually one of three, but it's really one of two. Or our actions are regenerative. They generate a positive fostering, you know, fostering love, fostering life a reaction, or they generate a negative. So a degenerative, something that is destroying relations, destroying life, destroying love. Um, and we see it in the world all the time. And obviously there are contradictions. It's not an easy space because the other thing that comes to mind is that, you know, in this continuum, there is no polarity. There is no black and white. It is actually a huge zone of grace. And we need to choose towards which direction are we moving? Are we moving towards the direction where we create the conditions for life to thrive? Or are we moving in our general scape to the creating conditions for life not to thrive, you know, life to get lost, to be lost. So this is one of the big decisions that we have to incorporate in, in everything we do. And, and I think learning uh, has lost a lot of this because it's focused on information, on certain types of knowledge, but not on asking questions. So bringing the capacity to ask deep questions in, in a relational approach is important. So I would say, you know, what we do in our nature-based networks or what we do in our work is really creating experiences that allow us to ask different questions and encouraging students to ask themselves these questions and use the answers and the discussions to learn, to learn about how they really want to create their relations, how they really want to live in a system that is dictated by the health of those relations uh, in, all, in all senses. And then teachers and educators become obviously individuals that can guide this process more than individuals that are there to give information. You know, we can support certain, uh, let's say, certain information that is needed at some point. But I think the role of educators and parents is really becoming guides uh, to create conditions for individuals to ask more of these questions and and always be questioning if what we're doing is leading us to create you know a harmonizing regenerative space or creating a space where we're detracting life where we're reducing let's say our capacity our vitality and our capacity to thrive you use words like questions relationships relational and a word that you used once, and I don't want our listeners to miss it, the importance of it is process. 
oftentimes in education, we say, oh, we value process more than outcome, but it's not an either or process and outcome. There's, there's not this binary. I particularly appreciate as well how you talk about opening up spaces, being guides. It's an emergent view. It's an it's, it's a, it's a opening up, as you said, of these areas. And it's this process rather than having these targets, these outcomes, these finalities, these, these buckets that you talked about at the very beginning that are full. How does it change our outlook on life to start to think about life as a process rather than as a thing or an outcome? I think it changes dramatically because if we're thinking our life as a way to outcomes and we measure outcomes through certain, let's say, indicators, you know, KPIs, whatever, uh, we're, we're ma making processes uh, or we're creating stimuli to reach a very specific descriptor that is not that is quantitative in general. It's not really qualitative. So we might reach that place where we think we should be, but we might have destroyed our own well-being in the process, for example. Um, and this happens a lot in, in schools. You know, we have certain, you know, objectives in terms of learning up to this level and having the scores up to this level. And you look at the students and the students are really having hard time. Their mental health is degraded. Their physical health is degraded because, you know, they're, they're put in a classroom and they're pressured all the time to reach these objectives. So we're forgetting that, you know, learning is about, you know, being born and moving through a life that's building our capacity to create well-being and well-being for ourselves, for others, for nature. Um, so it's really oxymoron, oxymoron, I think, to think that, you know, that will always lead to you know, good results. Um, so if we look, look at process, start actually thinking of not the score you got, but how your, you know, what your well-being is uh, in an integral. So it could be intellectual well-being also. It could be, you know, physical. It can be spiritual. It could be, you know, in many dimensions. Uh, it doesn't have to be one dimension. Uh, you know, that's a measurement that is more focused on process, like you said. Uh, and focusing on process means that not everyone needs to reach a, the same numbers, but everyone needs to foster communities where we can all thrive. And, and this is the beauty of diversity. If you look at, at a forest, again, that's has the forest. Um, in a forest, not all organisms act in the same way. They are not all as efficient in different aspects. Uh, they all have qualities uh, and functions. And qualities, sometimes, you know, a tree might grow faster than a bush. But then the bush might be, you know, capturing nutrients that the, feed, the tree needs to grow. So there is a collaborative relationship between those two. And then uh, it's not that everybody needs to be the tallest tree. And this is where the difference comes in. If we look at schools today, we're trying to push kids to be the tallest tree, always. And we'll, we're telling them that if they are in energy, like the you know this really 
important bush full of flowers that serves all pollinators, that that is not correct, that they should be the tree. We're creating, um, let's say, really big spaces of confusion because we're trying to create monocultures in places where we should be allowing the forest to grow. And understanding that there's multiple levels of you know, function and, 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 and relationships that are needed. Diversity in all senses is essential to thriving. So anything that leads us to creating monocultures of mind, monocultures of behavior, monocultures of thought, you know, is really gonna degrade our capacity to innovate, to be creative, and to create healthy societies. Um, and we're seeing that right now. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're seeing trends that are trying to erase other trends, and instead of really opening up and allowing ourselves the space of silence. And I'll, I'm coming back to silence because, for me, silence is not the absence of sound, but it's the disposition of listening, maybe. You know, if we put it in that sense, uh, learning through silence is actually learning in the capacity to increase our, our, our sensing qualities. So how can we sense and learn from maybe the visible? So if you look at naturalists, you know they, they spend a lot of time in silence. Why? Because they were observing, they were trying to capture with their senses, the patterns, the relationships, understanding the magic that's around them. But also that's the visible. But also there is an invisible part you know, which allows us to sense the quality of relationships. And, you know, when you walk into a room and you feel there's a lot of tension, you know, this is sensing the invisible. Uh, and, and we can learn how to sense it. And I think our brains and our nervous system can definitely be structured in such a way that it can have better tools to sense this. But in order to do this, uh, this takes me to a place that I'm really thinking right now, and it's focused on you know, education for regeneration and how early education is really fundamental. Because if we're building and, and developing our nervous system and our, you know, all our neural capacities in our early ages, we would definitely want to make sure that the learning experiences that allow our system to be built are the most diverse, the most open, the ones that allow us to learn how to sense the visible and the invisible. So kids that are being born and, and are trained and educated within you know, white rooms, maybe with uh, colors and, and toys in wood and you know, textures, it doesn't matter. With music, it can be Mozart. You know, all these developmental theories are forgetting one thing, is that as organisms, as mammals, as beings, you know, we were evolved growing in nature. And nature has the most diverse and rich experiences. So think of a child, a baby, sitting underneath a forest canopy, you know, feeling the wind, hearing the, the, the leaves uh, rustle, touched by the wind, seeing the birds, the insects, the light changing as it goes through the, the leaves. You know, it's, that is a true, rich, nurturing, learning environment. 
And if that's accompanied by a process that engages in, in, in a, a space full of love, full of, you know, uh, holding and warm and, and, and loving care, you know, you will have capacities to develop a, a nervous system that is attuned to these things. Um, and that will allow us to grow into being able to question much better uh, our mind, let's say our, our mental models that we're using today and be able to come with different solutions and different responses. So I did, I do think in that process, there's an emergent nature that is uncomfortable because we really don't know the responses right now. But we need to allow the, those spaces of silence at all levels in order for those responses to emerge. Uh, and we need to invite the huge diversity of thinking and feeling aligned in, in the direction of creating conditions for life to thrive, to allow for innovative and really creative solutions to arise on how we should inhabit our planet. Um, and how we should create community and how we should prioritize and lead our own lives. Listen, Luis, I really appreciate your time and your insights. And it's just so incredibly inspiring to think about those moments of silence and learning as nature, learning through silence and, and, and in silence so we can listen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Benjamin. It's lovely to be able to speak and share. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.com. And of course, check out Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Subscribe to the podcast, leave five stars. And in the meantime, talk to you soon.